Thanks so much for listening in to the Saints Hill Church Podcast. Our vision is to see heaven come to earth, and we do this by equipping the saints to know who they are in Christ, to walk in freedom through the truth, and make disciples who change the world. We hope this message draws you further into relationship with our Father, and if you would like to give to the mission of Saints Hill, please visit our website at saintshill.church. And thank you. Your generosity helps to keep Saints Hill going. Now, on to the message. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles. If you have your Bibles or if you have your phone, type into your, bio, into your phone. Uh, Luke. Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be this evening. We're in a series on Luke, and we, you know, we're very strategic. We're very smart individuals. So we decided we should start the Luke series right at Christmas time, because that's how Luke begins. So, yeah, I know, I know, it's pretty impressive. Uh, Luke chapter 2, um, and we're going to be in verse 1. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. This is a familiar passage, and uh, God, we ask that like most things during this season, they can become sentimental, that we would be shocked by how real you are tonight through the scriptures, in Jesus' name. Um, let's do this. Let's all stand together. Let's read this. I want to wake up. Luke chapter 2, verse 1, it says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first sentence or a census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, just right outside Jerusalem, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were, bo- while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. (laughs) I want that kind of glory. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. 
The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. This is the word of the Lord. You can sit down. Tonight, what I want to do is I want to focus on this specific line within what we just read, and that's verse 10. In verse 10, it says, I bring you, the angels speaking to the shepherds, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Let's say that together. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And as I read this and thought about this evening, I thought to myself, why? Because <laughs> the angels actually don't answer that question. They just say, this child's going to bring, this is you know, good news, and he's going to cause great joy for all the people. But why exactly is that? The angels don't say. And so tonight, I want to look at why Jesus' birth was good news that causes great joy for all people. And I want to start here. It's good news, not good stories. It's good news, not good stories. This isn't a nice tale like Rudolph or, or an inspiring biography with some embellishments. This is news. Why is it news? It's news because it's real. It's real. It really happened. The story of Jesus will not fit into our culture's framework of myth. In fact, here's what Luke says from the very start of his book. Flip over in your Bibles to the left to chapter 1, verse 1. We haven't read this yet, but here's what Luke says about, about his entire book. He says this in verse 1. You know, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us just as they were handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So Luke's concern is with people's certainty in the claim that Jesus was divine. That's his concern. And it's a wild claim to just say, there was this guy, yeah, he was born in Bethlehem, he was born in this manger, and he was God. That's a wild claim, still a wild claim today. And so what Luke is saying is he's like, I'm setting out to build a reason why you can trust that what has been written actually happened. That's his goal. He's like, how do I help you believe and trust that what's been written is real? And he alludes to a few reasons in the very beginning, a few phrases that I want you to pay attention to. He says this, he says, These th many have undertaken to draw up an account of things that have been fulfilled among us. So from the very beginning, he's saying this. The people who wrote this were there. Think about that. The people who wrote these things, these are things that were filled among, fulfilled among them. They were alive when these stories happened. The next thing that he says is that these things have been handed down. These things have been preserved. These stories of Jesus have been preserved in an oral tradition. Now, we don't have oral tradition anymore because we have the internet. In fact, our memories are far worse than ancient's memories because we don't have to remember anything. We can just look it up. 
Why remember it when you have Wikipedia? You have a whole thing that remembers it for you. But in this culture, they did writing and uh, papyrus, very expensive, very rare. So often stories and, and important things to remember were handed down by the elders of communities around campfires, around dinner tables. And, and there's entire books written about the, the memory and the skills of ancient peoples. But, but what you need to see is that these were stories that were not, not only fulfilled among the people who, who were actually there, like, hey, the people who told these stories, they were actually there. Uh, but that these stories were memorized and then handed down from generation to generation. They were handed down to us by those who witnessed them. And that's the next thing I want you to pay attention to, is he says that these were, caref- these were um, first handed down to us by those from whom the first were eyewitnesses. These were eyewitness accounts. There's this great book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses. And it basically shows how throughout all of the Gospels, when you get, first, uh, when you get personal names uh, like Cyrus of Cyrene or S- Simon of Cyrene, uh, you get these, per- these personal names, they act as footnotes. So that if somebody were reading this, let's say in, I don't know, like uh, 60 AD, 70 AD, they go, Simon of Cyrene, I know that guy. I should ask him, is this really what happened? They act as footnotes so that you can trust the account of what has actually been said. And so here's what Luke is saying. He's saying, I have carefully investigated everything from the beginning. This is one of the reasons why we chose the book of Luke, actually, is that Luke is the most detailed and specific of all of the authors of the stories of Jesus. Out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke is the most detailed. He's the most carefully, he's most carefully investigated uh, of all of the authors. Because here's the point. This is news, not myth. It really happened. As I was thinking about this today, I was thinking of C.S. Lewis and how he said, look, it really happened. So either Jesus is a liar, either he's a lunatic, or he really is who he said he was. He's Lord. And every person, because this is news, has that decision right in front of them. Is he a liar? He really isn't God? Is he a lunatic? Only crazy people believe that that they're God. Or is he really telling the truth? But this news, you know, what strikes me is that this is not normal news, right? Because think about the news today. Like, oh. Think about the news today. My experience with the news is that the news has the ability to frustrate at least half the population, no matter what it's reporting. Okay? So you get the news, and you're like, that makes me mad, and somebody else is like, that's awesome! That's the news. But this news is different because this news is news that causes great joy for all the people. Hmm. So, so here's the question. What's so good about this news? What is so good about this news? I would argue that to understand how good this news is, we need to understand why we need it. To understand how good this story is, we need to understand what we've been missing without it. Look down in your Bibles, uh, chapter 2, verse 11, it says this. Um, we'll start in verse 10, actually. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And here's the news, verse 11. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. A Savior has been born. That's the good news, that a Savior has been born. Now, here's the problem for, I think, many Western people. I'm not sure how many people in the United States today acutely feel the need of a savior. It's like, do I actually need a savior? 
Or, do I, or, or maybe it says, I need a savior, but I don't know if it looks like uh, Jesus. I'm not sure that that's the kind of savior that I need. Because to many of us, the problems of the world seem so immediate and urgent and, and not, not spiritual. They seem so fleshly and earthly. So, so like the problems that I think many people feel today is they feel like racism. That's a problem. They feel poverty. That's a problem. They, they see sickness. That's a problem. Natural disaster. We've all been reminded this past week. That's a problem. And so I think people in the West think that a singular savior is kind of an odd idea. No, no, no. The people of the West think, no, we need more systemic change. We need a systemic savior, not a personal savior. But the Bible doesn't locate the central problem for humanity in racism or poverty or sickness or natural disaster. Here's what the Bible says the problem is. If you, if, you don't, if you don't understand what the Bible says the problem is, you're gonna come up with the, an incorrect solution, okay? Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says humans were created to rule. From the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, verse 26, God designs humans for a very specific purpose, and it is to rule. You were designed to be a king. You were designed to be a queen. You were designed to rule, but as the story goes, we find out instead of humans ruling over the earth, humans end up getting ruled themselves. How does it happen? Well, there's this story in Genesis chapter 3 where we find out that humans, instead of agreeing with God, maintaining their identity as people made in the image of God, maintaining their identity as, as rulers, instead of that, they agree with this serpent, this anti-God, this, this lesser spiritual being, and by agreeing with him, they disagree with God. And, and, and then what happens is they uh, are ruled by this lesser being rather than ruling over the earth like they were intended to rule. So as we read the story, what then happens is that humans are given to the gods that they choose. The gods that they want to worship, the things that they really desire uh, on earth, they're actually given those things. And rather, what we, the whole Old Testament and into the New, what we see is that rather than getting free, rather than freedom being defined as the ability to choose whatever you want, we find that humans get enslaved by what they worship. The problem is that humans were designed to be close to God and free, but now they are far from God and enslaved. And the story is still playing out today. I think people who acutely feel the pain of the brokenness of this world uh, feel this. And so they, they attempt to medicate. And their medicating is their worship at the altar of material, at the altar of sex, at the altar of power or social opinion, it is all medicating. It is all worship. And instead, what we found is instead of delivering a godlike experience, their worship actually shrivels them into insecure kids. Like, why, what's wrong with the world? People's, people have worshiped things that are less than God, and it has shriveled them to something they were not designed to be. They were designed to rule. That's the problem with humanity. And I think if people were to get real with themselves, to just pause for a moment of self-reflection, they would find that what they are really after and how that has worked out thus far 
they would see, actually, I do need a savior. Actually, I do need help. And so here's the good news that causes great joy. There is a savior, and you don't have to save yourself. Your worship, your medicating, it hasn't saved you yet. You need a savior. Someone just arrived on the shore with a life preserver while you struggle in the waves. There's another standing in the inferno of culture and the brokenness of earth. What this story tells us is there is another. There's a savior. A savior has been born. Someone came for you, and he is the good news. He is the good news. See, the the problem the savior is solving is a connection problem. It's a connection problem. Ecclesiastes uh, is is written by Solomon, and Ecclesiastes says uh, that all humans have eternity in their hearts. Have you ever read that before? How many of you have read that before? A number of you? It's a wild passage. Eternity has been placed into the heart of every person. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. I think it means that we were not designed for things to fade, to fall apart, or to atrophy. That's why pain and loss hurt so much. It's like I wasn't, every time my wife and I face death of somebody that we knew or loved, there's just this sense of like, it's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this way. That's eternity in our hearts. So what that means is that humans are constantly looking for rescue from this eternal problem. Rescue from the pain. Rescue from the loss. Rescue from the fear, the grinding grief of losing something that was meant to last. And so I put forth to you that all the obvious problems of our world, the things that I listed earlier, the greed, the hunger, the exploitation, the propaganda, all of those obvious problems come from people trying to solve this eternal ache with solutions of earth. Trying to figure out, how do I take care of this pain that I feel, that this shouldn't be the way that things are, but it is the way that things are. How do I, how do I take care of it? And so what happens is that in order to take care of that pain, people will manipulate and trample and strive just to feel like they're in control just to feel like they're in power, just to feel like they're God. Remember Genesis 3? Eat this and you will be like God. People have been using earth solutions to solve the eternal problem from the very beginning. But what people have found from the Queen of Sheba to the middle class American is that no amount of money or power, or beauty, or allure will be able to reverse what you sense deep down. You were made to know eternity himself, but here you are immortal. Nothing can solve that problem. No thing can solve that problem. And what what I'm saying is that all the obvious problems of earth are not what they seem. Because what they seem like to us, when, we, when, when you read the newspaper, I was just, gosh, I'm just so susceptible to this still, but I, today I, I, I was at a bakery and they had a newspaper and I start reading through the newspaper, it's a local newspaper, and I literally am just like staring out the window just thinking, I don't know what to do. I don't even know where to start. I'm so confused. What problems seem like to the unrenewed mind 
is increasingly complex in need of a complex solution that nobody has yet. And so what we've been fed by our culture, because our culture is not immune to this. I mean, people feel this. There's like, I just saw a commercial the other day that's like, uh, young adult anxiety has been on the rise. Anxiety's on the rise. Uh, we're not immune to this, but what our culture says, the answer is this, is it says complex problems are in need, are in need of detangling one's past trauma with modern strategies for wellness. Wellness. All my millennials in the house. Wellness is put forward as this idea, it's the savior idea. It's the problem with the complex solutions is that you haven't gotten enough me time. You haven't drank the right juice. You haven't tried the right exercise. You're not eating the right thing. You're not wearing the right thing. You don't have enough, you're, you're, you're too maximalist. You don't have enough minimalism in your life. Or you're just too minimalist. You just need one more thing. It's just a Peloton. Just get the Peloton. <laughs> and you're like, that. <laughs> you want the Peloton? Yeah, I know you want the Peloton. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Dang it. They're not getting the Peloton. <laughs> remember last year when a, a husband giving the Peloton was like a bad thing? Yeah, I remember that too. Uh, so <laughs> it's like, <laughs> the problems that we see outside of us have a simple solution. And that's what Christmas is all about. It looks complex to the eye. Don't be deceived. They are far more simple in what they are, and they are far more simple in their solution. It's almost like there's a Holy Spirit that connects people leading this gathering because you stole my verse from earlier. John 10.10 10 says this. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's a good word. Christmas reminds us of the most basic principle of the universe. Jesus came to give you life. It is the most foundational principle of all of life. Jesus came to give you life. Go ahead and put your hand over your heart. Say this with me. Jesus came to give me life. Say it again. Jesus came to give me life. If you have him, you have life. If you don't have him, then you will claw, you will scrape, and you will work to find life all the while dying inside. What is abundant life? I came that they may have abundant life, life abundantly. What is abundant life? I think abundant life is a life of, filled with Jesus, and here's what it looks like. It's no fear of death. I'm not afraid to die. It's freedom from the need to be in control. There's a lot of people who need that freedom. Free, freedom from the need to be in control. How good are you, and this is... I'm asking myself this question. How good are we at 
This is all making sense. As I was driving, sorry, I'm like just thinking. Uh, as I was driving over here, I'm, I'm in a moment of being patient and waiting on God for a specific thing. Have you ever been there? Some of you are probably there. Yeah, I see you. Yeah, you're waiting. Yeah, yeah. For a spouse? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> hey, I've seen, I've seen you in the gym. It could be coming sooner than you think, man. It could be coming sooner. <laughs> so, so I'm, I'm on my way uh, to church tonight, and, I, and I'm just thinking, like, why am I so frustrated with waiting for you to do something in my life? Why am I so... Um, why? why? Why does it bug me so much, the waiting? And he basically just, you know, God's speaking to me, and he, he basically says this phrase to me. He says, your greatness is revealed by your ability to wait for me. You think you're going to be great by your action, but your greatness is revealed by your ability to wait. How good are we at watching our culture divide and, and, and destroy and the thief have its way? How good are we at, at actually just going, I'll wait before I act. I'll wait before I say anything. I, I actually don't have the right to have an opinion about something that I haven't heard you speak about. I don't have the right to, to do anything before I have seen what you're doing. There will be some of you who he shows you, I'm doing this. And you're like, okay, I'm doing this too. And there will be others of you that he says, I'm actually sitting back, so you should sit back with me right now. Freedom from the need to be in control. How good are you at waiting? It's life abundant. It, life abundant, what else is it? It's freedom from fear of what people think. So I think this is like a breakthrough on this house. Is like, there's going to be people who you come in here and you, you're here for a year, and then you go and you move somewhere else. And the thing that you got was you got free from fearing what people think about you. It's knowing that you have an eternal destiny. That's life abundant. So if if I look at what life abundant is, and and my life cannot be described as life abundant then I, I, I must conclude that I've really yet to get Jesus and he has yet to fully get me. This is, this is why, what does it mean to be a disciple? It's that what it means to be a disciple is constantly finding places where you've yet to let him love you and rather than being depressed or down on yourself about it, you go, oh, another opportunity for your love to go deeper. Another opportunity to get free. <laughs> it's so good to get free. That's life abundant. See, all the problems for humans, every problem, and, and my wife, she just, she's so good at reminding me of this, all the problems for humans are really intimacy problems. They're really nearness problems. And so Christmas says, what if all of the joy, <laughs> what if all the recognition that you long for, what if the eternal love, the love, the, the relationship that doesn't die, the identity, the peace, what if all of that was found in the one who is resurrected? Jesus, what if you knew life himself? What if you knew life himself? It's like the hymn, he is born that man no more may die. What if you knew him? 
Jesus comes to reconnect you to the Father who made you. Here's what he says to his disciples and to us. He says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's his will? It's on earth as it is in heaven. That's his will for us. That's his will for Newburgh. This is the good news that causes great joy for all the people because when you get the Savior and he gets you, you get a father whose will for your life is heaven on earth. That's the good news. And when you, when you get that, your whole way of thinking changes. You're no longer clawing or scraping to live. Your whole way of thinking changes. So here's just a few things that you stop thinking. You no longer think, the more I worry, the more prepared I will be when bad comes. You don't think that way anymore because you have a father who's eternal. You're keeping eternity in mind and you know he's gonna return to make what is broken new. So actually, my worry does not affect this situation more than his will does. You you no longer think when someone else wins, it means I lose. (laughs) Children Children of God don't think that. You have a father who has enough abundance for every person to live life abundantly. He's got enough. You no longer think, if I don't look out for myself, who will? You have a father who wants to interact with you and you're not alone. Guys, Christmas is the story of God scouring the valleys and the mountain crags looking for shriveled, lost sons and daughters and telling them their royalty with a kingdom to rule in. That's the message. That's the good news. And the good news isn't only that Jesus is born, the good news is that Jesus is born and here's what he intends to do. He's gonna make you a king again. He's gonna make you a queen again. You won't fear death when you know life itself. You won't need control when you see his power. You won't care what happens to you in this life. There's an eternal city that he's built. The news is a savior is here to reverse all the effects of the fall by reconnecting you to a father. Say that. Say that with me. Jesus Your birth reverses all effects of the fall. Jesus, your birth reverses all effects of the fall. Say thank you, Jesus, for reconnecting me to my Father. That's the story of Christmas. That's the message of Christmas. Let's go ahead and stand together. I, uh, I, I have this poem that I want to read that I love reading around Christmas time. It's just a, an amazing poem. And so if you want to, you're more than welcome. Go ahead and close your eyes and go there with me in your imagination. I'm just going to read this poem to you guys. This is by Dr. James Francis. Wrote this a number of years ago. Here's what it says. Speaking of Jesus. Here is a man who was born in an, an obscure village the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. 
He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to, upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth, his coat. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Nineteen long centuries have come and gone, and today he is the centerpiece of the human race and leader of the column of progress. I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. So here's my question to you this evening. What will you do with him? Will you give yourself to this king? All of the kingdom is dependent upon that. Thanks for listening. If we can do anything to help you, or if you want to stay in the loop with what is going on in and around the church, you can follow us on Instagram, download the Saints Hill app in the App Store, or visit our website.